It's the um, parable of the tenants. Luke chapter 19, verses 9 to 19. This is Jesus speaking. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He also sent another servant. But that one, they, they also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked at them directly and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests look for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is God's word. Amen. Now, as, um, as we have discovered with the lighting of, of the candle, today is Advent Sunday. Advent Sunday is the start of the official kind of church countdown to Christmas. Note that I said it's the start of the church's countdown to Christmas. It is pretty obvious that the rest of society, British society, has been thinking about Christmas for weeks. Um, and as with every year, churches, churches like ourselves, we're trying to get people to think not just simply about Christmas as a celebration, but to have Jesus at the center of it. You've seen the, the, ad, the, um, the invite, beautiful card, um, Chris Hogg designed this. Well done, Chris. Um, this advert, this invite, and it says there on the front, oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. And we, you know, we say this isn't simply an invite to come to some services. This isn't simply a line from a carol. This is an invitation to a way of life. This is an invitation to a, to a life of worship, to worship Jesus, to put him at the center of our lives. But what do people make of this? What do people make of Jesus? What do people make of Jesus beyond the baby in the manger? You might know this famous quote from Gandhi. Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That's what Gandhi said. Now, obviously, he's speaking about hypocrisy, but it's a thought 
that echoes with a lot of people. A lot of people out there echo that kind of thinking. Because there's a lot in Jesus' teaching that people liked to hear. They like when Jesus talks about the way we, we should treat each other. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan when Jesus said, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Actually, where Jesus was repeating Old Testament teaching. What do people think of Jesus? Um, there was a major piece of research carried out earlier this year. It's called um, Talking Jesus, the follow-up on something else. You can Google it. The, the results are really quite interesting. And in it, it said that um, there was a kind of a telephone survey done. It's all kind of statistically um, accurate and, and reliable. And in it, it said that um, a lot of people were positive about Jesus. People were very positive about him. They were given um, a list of adjectives there um, for which they could use to describe Jesus. And the most popular ones of all, people said of Jesus being loving, peaceful. Jesus, they thought of Jesus as wise, Jesus as, as, as a leader. Not very many people chose to describe Jesus as judgmental. Not many people chose to describe Jesus as irrelevant. And yet, it's not as if our churches are overflowing with people. But what did Jesus make of all that himself? How did Jesus view his own popularity? Plenty of crowds um, that gathered around Jesus. But on one occasion, on one occasion, um, when there were crowds around, Jesus spoke to his disciples. He spoke to his closest followers. And he said this. He said to them, the world hates me. The world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. That's what Jesus said. And later on, he goes on to tell the rest of his disciples that, well, they're going to hate you too because you're linked with me. And so you can expect to have the same kind of treatment that I had, that same kind of antagonism, that same kind of tension around Jesus. Jesus said, um, the world hates me, and one day they're going to hate you too. So what do people make of Jesus? You know, beyond the, the telephone survey, deep down in their hearts, what do people make of Jesus? It's a mixed picture. It really is. It's a mixed picture. And it's always been like that. It's always been the case that there are crowds gathering to hear Jesus or to see him perform a miracle, or they come to to see him, and they cheer him, on, cheer him on. They're very excited by it. And then the Gospels tell us that weeks later, there are crowds shouting, crucify him. Probably not the same group of people, but you get the picture. Reactions to Jesus are mixed. Today is the last in the series, this kind of short series we've had, looking at parables from Luke's Gospel We've called them Jesus' subversive stories, and today is the last of them. And as it happens, it's actually the parable of the tenants that I just read earlier is the last kind of full parable that we have in Luke's gospel. And I was talking about this with um, Chris a, f um, a few weeks back, that as you read the gospels, and particularly in Luke's gospel, I think, that as you read them, as you read the gospel, Jesus starts with parables and as they go on and on and on, the parables get clearer. 
they get clearer. If you were with us kind of at the start of this kind of you know, four weeks ago, we started with a parable of the sower. And in that parable, after he speaks it, the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, tell us, what does this parable mean? Tell us what it, you know, what does it mean? But with this parable, then if you notice that, it's very clear. It's very clear that people understood what Jesus was getting at. Verse 19, it says there, the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. The religious leaders knew that Jesus was talking against them. And so they want to find a way to arrest him. But it's not just that Jesus was talking against them. He's talking about himself. Jesus is in Jerusalem. This, is, this parable is set against the backdrop of Jesus' last week, as it were, the last week before his death. And Jesus has been on this journey from Galilee in the north of the country down to Jerusalem. And every step he takes along the journey is taking him closer to the cross. It's taking him closer to him fulfilling his mission. And the parable makes really clear that Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. That Jesus knows he's going to die. And Jesus has been in a debate with the religious leaders and, they have been, and they've been saying to him, Jesus, we see you doing this. We see you driving out um, the money changers in the temple. We see you speaking and teaching in this way. What gives you the right to do that? Who's given you the authority to say and do all these things? And this parable is part of that response. It's part of his response to that question. The story itself that Jesus tells is dramatic dramatic. And Jesus would have had everyone on tenterhooks from the very first line of it. Jesus said, a man planted a vineyard, and straight away, people would have known what this was about. They would have known that it's about them. Why? Because in, 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 Jewish, in, in the history of God's people, in the Old Testament, what they knew as their Bible, the vineyard, a vineyard was used as a picture of Israel. It was a metaphor. It was a metaphor for, for um, a people planted, established by God. And so when they hear a man planted a vineyard, they know that this story is going to be about God in relationship with them. And the story goes, or the, the picture's being described of this owner. He goes away and he puts tenants in charge. And that was, that was not an uncommon thing at that time. What happened? And the tenants are in charge. And the, the way things worked is that they would get to enjoy the fruit. But then come harvest time, they owe rent. And that's when it starts to turn ugly. It's when it turns ugly. In the story, it says a servant turns up. He's beaten up and sent away empty. Same thing happens with a second servant. Attack, battered, sent away. Third comes along, wounded, sent away empty. Perhaps it's getting worse with each servant who arrives. Then verse 13, it says, and then in the midst of this, we suddenly hear the owner speak himself. What shall I do? What shall I do? Now, imagine you're, 
You're one of the crowd listening to Jesus telling this story. And you're thinking, the owner says, what shall I do? He's saying, well, come on. The owner's got to get serious here. The owner can't just carry on doing the same thing again and again. These tenants, they're violent people. They are nasty pieces of work. They need to be dealt with. You've got to use force. But what happens? The owner doesn't send in soldiers. He sends his son. Just hit pause there for a second. He sends his son. What do you think of the owner at this point in the story? In the story, what do you think of him? Does it make sense to send his son? At the very least, the owner is showing extraordinary patience with these tenants. They don't deserve anything else. And yet he's being patient towards them. He's giving them another chance. And yet, and yet, turns out, probably just as we expected it, as the crowd would expect, the tenants do the same thing as they did to the servants, and they throw the son out and kill him. They murder him. And what will happen next? The clear answer is that there now, there must be judgment. There must be punishment for the crimes. And it finishes by saying that the vineyard is handed over to other people. And this is a dramatic story, and it's a story that brings out deep emotions in the people who heard it. When they hear all of this, they say, God forbid. And, and that, that word that's been translated, God forbid, it has this sense of saying, no, no, that can't happen. No way. That, that, that can't be right. No, never. And we're not exactly sure that when they're having that reaction, it's whether that's in relation to the whole story or whether it's just in relation to the vineyard now being handed to other people. You see, if the crowd really did completely understand that this is, that once, that the vineyard is about them, that the vineyard is about Israel, it's about them, it's about their people, their land and their history, then they're going to feel that, that something's at stake for them. When Jesus says the vineyard's going to be handed over to other people, to other tenants, maybe there's this sense that, hang on, we're about to lose something. We could lose something valuable. We could lose our name, our history, our heritage. Remember that the people were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for, for a Messiah, a figure who would come and not just rule over them kind of spiritually, but someone who would give them back their kingdom. Someone who'd give them back their physical kingdom. Someone who would get rid of the, the occupying Romans. But here, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. Jesus is talking about the blessings of the kingdom being now given to other people. And the warning signs were already there. You see, the people who are listening... They didn't just recognize that the vineyard was Israel. They didn't just recognize that God's the owner. But they would have also picked up that the servants who go to collect something and are beaten up and sent away, that those servants were the prophets. The prophets who came to warn the people again, again, and again. 
that God had called them to be accountable, that you know, they were warning God's people that they had to bear fruit. They had to bear fruit for God. They had to live according to God's law. And the people knew what had happened to the prophets, that they'd been badly treated by religious leaders, political leaders, and by ordinary people. So none of this was brand new for them. It wasn't news for them. And like I say, all of this would have been well known, well understood by the people. And as a history lesson, it explains why Jesus died and it explains the hatred that he faced from the religious leaders. But what does it mean for us today? If you've zoned out, if you've already zoned out, because, I don't know, maybe it's a bit cold, maybe you've got other things on your mind, or maybe it's just my voice is a bit dull, now's the time to wake up again. Okay, this is a chance to get back in. Okay. Because if you're going to listen to anything, listen now. <laughs> okay, listen now. This parable describes a level of hatred and a level of rebellion that leads to murder. It leads to a premeditated taking of another person's life. It's shocking. It's horrific. And it happens today. It happens today to Christians. Maybe it doesn't happen, we don't hear about it that much in this country, but it does happen to Christians in other parts of the world. I'm a big football fan, I'm enjoying the World Cup, but I know, according to the charity, the Christian um, organization Open Doors, that seven of the nations taking part in the World Cup are on the world watch list. Countries where it is dangerous, where being a Christian, being known as a Christian, comes at a serious cost, a serious risk of safety. That's the physical attack. But what about us again? Some of you know that tomorrow, if you're at work, at school, at college, and they said, what were you doing on, on Sunday? What did you do on Sunday? If you said that you were in church, listening to a talk from the Bible, you know that some people would start to look at you differently. They'd start to treat you differently. Jesus said, the world hates me. Jesus warned his disciples that they could expect something similar. Now, before we get all defensive about this, before we start thinking, everyone's out to get me, actually, the spotlight is turned back on us. See, it's very easy to, to point a, a finger at, I have to be careful where I point now, <laughs> um, to, to point a finger at wicked regimes, to point the finger at workplace bullies, to point the finger even at, you know, anti-Christian comedians. But Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. Because the Bible says that naturally, without God's work in our hearts, without God's work in my heart, I have more in common with these tenants than I'm really comfortable to admit. In one of the first sermons after the resurrection, the apostle Peter is preaching to a crowd in Jerusalem. And he says to them, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate. 
You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be released to you. You killed the author of life. In other places, the New Testament talks about a life without Jesus as being under God's anger, being under God's wrath, under his sentence of judgment. The Bible says that outside of a life with Jesus, that we have lived like enemies of a good and loving God. And so by nature, when it comes to giving back to God, by offering up the harvest, by offering up the fruits, the good fruits of our life, we want it for ourselves. By nature, we want to say, it's my life, it's my harvest, it's for me. We might not ever gone out to kill God, but at times we've lived as though he was dead. More convenient to try and shut him out. And the thing is that from this story, we see, from Jesus' parable, we just see how ridiculous it is to think that that's not going to have any consequence. It's ridiculous to think that, that the tenants are going to get away with it. Maybe that's something for us to think about, that sin is foolish. The sin is ridiculous. To think that there are no consequences from sin, whether in this life or in the life to come. Rejection comes at a cost. Now, both then and now, Jesus is getting personal. Jesus is getting personal now. The gaze is on us. Can we look at verse 17 together? Jesus looked directly at them and said, and, and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone whom it falls, anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is quoting from poetry. He's quoting from Hebrew poetry from Psalm 118. And he's talking about a reversal. He's talking about a reversal. The stone that's rejected now becomes the cornerstone, the most important stone. And there's too much here to, to unpack, unpack in our time. But you hope, hopefully you're getting the big idea that Jesus is that stone. And Jesus isn't just staking a claim to be uh, the cornerstone or the foundation of our lives. But Jesus is saying, actually, he's the cornerstone of all life, of all existence, of all history. And Jesus is he's using a bit of clever wordplay here. You know, the story had been about a son, a beloved son. And now he switched to talking to, about a stone he kind of goes from one kind of metaphor to, to another. And yet, the, the, the Hebrew word for son is ben. The Hebrew word for stone is eben. If you reject the ben, you'll be crushed by eben. Okay, it doesn't really work in English, does it at all? Mixing languages doesn't work. All right, I'll try alliteration instead. If you reject the son the beloved son, you'll be crushed by the stone. You reject the son, you get crushed by the stone. And that's the warning. It's a deep warning. It's a serious warning. 
If you reject the Son, if we reject Jesus, there are eternal consequences for us. And that's our natural state. I know the tendency of my own heart is towards rebellion against God. The natural tendency of my heart is, is a rejection of God's goodness. But it doesn't have to be that way. Over the past four weeks, we've been looking at these parables, these parables of the kingdom. And in each of these stories, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, it seems that there's been a right way and a wrong way, or even a right way and multiple ways to get it wrong. You've got the parable of the sower, and you had these different soils where the seed fell on, and most of them were unproductive. You know, the, 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 um, the seed that falls on, on the path where it's eaten up by the birds, the, the seed that falls on the shallow ground or, or the stony ground. Then you have the seed that falls on the fertile ground where it's productive and beautiful and, and there's a flourishing there. You have the parable of the Good Samaritan and there were different reactions to that injured person lying on the road. Could look by, you know, see See the injured person, or then just turn your head, cross over the road. That's the Levite. That's the priest. Or you can stop and help, like the Samaritan. Love your neighbor as yourself, like the Samaritan does. Or last week, last week, the parable of the, of the great banquet, and you had the first lot of invited guests. And what did they, what did they do? They all made excuses. My job. My home, my relationships, they all came first ahead of accepting a relation, accepting the invitation to join God's banquet. What's going on in these stories? Jesus is calling you. He's inviting you to respond to these stories. These are stories with intent, with a desire to get to, to stir something in you to say, not that way, this way. And to respond, we're not just respond, responding to a warning of judgment, but we're also we're responding to an invitation to know God's grace, to experience forgiveness. As I said, all of these stories, they're building towards this. All of this journey is building towards Jesus' death. Jesus' death on the cross, a death which was not an accident, a death which was not simply a miscarriage of justice, but a death that was part of God's plan, and a death where Jesus gives his life in order that we might have life. See, the promise of the gospel is that even though we have been unfruitful soil, even though we have ignored justice and walked on the other side, the promise of the gospel is even though we've made excuse after excuse after excuse, the promise of the gospel is that even in our hearts where we've ignored or hated Jesus, the promise of the gospel is that if that Jesus died for us, that Jesus was crushed by the weight of our sin, and so that if we turn to him in repentance, in faith, we won't be crushed ourselves. The promise of the gospel, that when we turn to Jesus in faith and, and repentance, 
We're not crushed by the stone. We get to be treated as the son. We get to be loved as the son. Just going to ask you to be quiet for a moment. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have been patient with us. The story tells of your patience with people that you made, with people who should owe you the fruit of their lives, but people who have ignored you. Thank you for your patience towards us. Thank you for sending Jesus to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the beloved son of the Father and the one who willingly gave his life for us, even though that we are the rebels, even though we are the ones who hated you. Thank you that when you died, you were crushed for our sin. You bore the weight of our sin so that we would not have to bear the weight of your judgment. Holy Spirit, I pray that no one here would leave without understanding that. That anyone who wants to turn to Jesus, who wants to trust him as, as the stone, would leave in the assurance of forgiveness. And I pray for anyone who in their heart continues to reject and make excuses to walk by on the other side. Father, I pray that you would move in their heart. I ask all this for Jesus' name and his glory alone. Amen.